Winter is coming. Yes, as things heat up on the field in the AFLM, Game of Thrones will return to our TV screens and Fox Footy's commentators will dress up as their favourite characters to celebrate round four. Wowee, boy oh boy, you know nothing, Jon Snow. In the real world, the Eagles gave the competition a stirring reminder of their calibre and Dom Sheed proved he is more than a one-hit wonder, providing a carbon copy of his grand final goal to seal the rematch on Saturday night. As you can imagine, Casey Simons is well and truly up and about, even more so than me. So we've got her back on board, despite the fact that watching her happy about football is like watching your ex remarried. Just to clarify this, Casey is not my ex. I'm saying that the (laughs) happiness you get from your football team winning is my ex. And now that that used to be mine and it's someone else's, it kind of hurts a little. Elsewhere, the Queensland teams lit up the comp just as the rest of the country lost their extra daylight hours. So, will the Suns be able to stick it out now that daylight savings is gone? Gordon, Casey and several morning coffees are with me in the pod booth to tackle all the burning questions. G'day team, how are we? Hello lads, I'm very well as you described JB and thank you for clarifying our platonic relationship status for everyone. I'm glad that's cleared up. And uh, thanks, JB, for just completely ignoring me in the intro yet again. Usually some <laughs> all the intros so far this season have been like, and as per usual, or as needless to say, I'm still here. Well, I'm still here, so uh, let's go. Was this the most horrendously over-umpired round in living memory, guys? Well, Casey's a West Coast fan, so Casey... You guys love to bash the umpires. We love the umpires. The noise of MCG affirmation. (laughs) That 50-minute penalty was wonderful. Um, Yeah, I mean, yes, it was. It's hard with this one because I feel like this season feels a little bit different than previous ones because I know the first few rounds of seasons we usually see a lot of over-umpiring and then it kind of settles, but it seems that this season's blowing up a lot more than I really remember happening, so I don't really know what why that is. I think it was just the contrast between round one, round two, and then that clear jump up in the number of free kicks that were being Mm. paid, which I didn't watch Thursday, but it started for me really on Friday. And that was a noticeable difference in the game that was immediately picked up on things that weren't getting paid in round two were getting paid. And that's where to me, I don't, I felt a little bit sorry for the umpires because I felt like it was clearly a directive from HQ. And I feel like there are some cases like contact below the knees where it's a case of shooting the messenger. I don't necessarily think the umpires are at fault. Definitely. Well, that was the message that came out in all the media today from AFL House, that they stood by all the decisions. So it's clearly a directive. Yeah, it's like, we, this is what we want. We clearly want more mm-hmm. free kicks to be paid. We clearly want contact below the knees in the game. But why? And that is, Why don't I want more think, free kicks to be paid? Well, I think that's the second part of the question. But, to, well, to me, the obvious argument that's been made is that that's because of scoring. But how does that... Like scoring hasn't gone up with the more like with the increase in free kicks, there has been no increase in scoring. So there's no def- is there a definitive correlation between those two factors? I wouldn't say so. Because no. the common logic is, if we start giving forwards free kicks that they wouldn't have gotten inside fifty, they'll be more cheap. In like a inverted, I'm making bunny ears around mm. my head. There's more cheap goals. Yeah, but they're not they're not the free kicks we've been seeing paid. We're seeing you know. Deliberate out of bounds being paid within an inch of its life, or we're seeing, yeah, sliding below the knees being paid within an inch of its life. It's not hands like we've abolished hands on the back, so defenders are now able to take more defensive marks against their forwards. If anything, it's the opposite effect. So, do you think that because of the way that the rules are being adjudicated, we've kind of lost the original sight of why some of these rules were actually brought in in the first place, Gordon? 
I'd absolutely say so. I mentioned here in the in the show notes about the spirit of cricket. A, because I just love cricket, and we'll talk about it at any stage and pigeonhole it whenever I can. You can see Casey rolling her eyes over there. But, but B, I like cricket. Um, okay. So in the laws of the game, in the late 90s, the MCC, who are the rule makers, actually put in a preamble about the spirit of cricket, essentially saying whilst all the laws are to be followed to the nth letter of their degrees and all the legalese to be followed and these are complicated rules, at the end of the day, if, it's, if it feels like it's against the purpose, point or spirit of cricket, then the umpire can just say, nah, fellas, that's not on. What I think the AFL has gone down the route of is best being really caught up in the nitty-gritty of like forceful contact below the knees. And now umpires are like, oh, was that forceful contact? Was it not forceful contact? I oh, just better just pay it. As opposed to being like, was he trying to hurt the player? Or was he trying to go for the ball? If he's trying to go for the ball, let's not pay a free kick. If he's trying to hurt the player, let's pay the free kick. Like they've just lost common sense. And I'm, it's almost like the pub test you use in politics. It's like if you got a, a straw poll of people around in the pub and was like, does this policy make sense to you? And if the majority say, yeah, that sounds like an all right, all right idea, then it's probably going to be an all right idea. If you can watch a game excluding all of the fans involved, so just neutral watchers of football, regular watchers of football in a pub, something happens, you go, is that a free kick? And most people go, yeah, then it probably is. And if most people go, nah, and it probably isn't. And that's what's happening. Like you you see on Twitter, you see on social media, something will happen and be like, how is that a free kick? And if the vast majority of people are like, how is that a free kick? Probably not a free kick. So if it looks like a dog and it barks like a dog, it's probably a free kick. Yeah, or a duck, <laughs> depending on if you're, you're Greg Long. <laughs> so you've kind of led us really nicely into the second agenda question there. So is contact below the knees anti-footy? So this was brought in because of a really serious leg injury that was caused by I guess if a, an incident, and you get this a little bit in the sport like hockey or soccer, where the, the guys slid like four or five metres into the ball, as opposed to um, like literally just going to ground to pick the ball up. And I think that anyone that sort of looked at this rule has kind of gone, it's gone away from being about the dangerous sliding action, which in a sport like hockey is normally a 10-minute yellow card if you go to ground in a tackle because of the potential for you to go through the legs of someone who's up. Like That sort of interpretation I get. Where this is getting really complicated is that we've now just got people going to pick the ball up and diving on it with their hands without any significant momentum and they're collecting the side of someone's shin and they, the player falls over them and it's not a serious... There's no serious risk of injury, but we're then seeing a free kick paid. Well, the sport that has this absolutely nailed, more due to like its mechanics, is rugby union. So in rugby union, you can't pick the ball up off the ground unless you have your feet on the ground. So if you if you go to ground to try and collect the ball, you're not allowed to go and run off with it. You have to then put it into the a rock and more. Yeah. So like that should be the way they adjudicate. It's like it is a bit anti football in the sense that football's kind of two major things was like. Get to the ball first, kick more goals. Like they're the two. If you win the contested pill and you kick more goals, you usually win games of footy. And now one of those things you can't do because mm. you, you're almost penalised for getting to the ball first. That's why I don't. I don't think the game is the same in design as rugby to the point that you need to be on your feet. I just think it's a case of, like we said before, the AFL has completely lost what the intent of the rule was. Mm. Um, because every footballer, if the, the ball is there do anything you can do to get it. Get on the ball. And you see these brilliant examples of players who get to a ball they have no right to get to and sort of palm it back or whatever and mm. they manage to win a contest that they don't deserve to win. That's part of the game. And I think this rule, just it just contradicts that. And I know Dangerfield teed off on Twitter um, after the, the free kick was paid um, that then led to a 50-metre penalty because Stevenson threw the ball back to the wrong player. Scott Pendlebury had a 30-second conference with the umpire again um, <laughs> and it kind of just dovetailed from there. 
Is it as big of a deal as what the media is making it out to be? No. Like how many how many of those free kicks were actually given? On the well, weekend? you probably saw one in that West Coast game case. Yeah, well, I think the issue with that one was, though, not so much the free that was paid to below the knees. It was the players not understanding what the free was for and the quick turnaround in time that the umpire gave the 50. Like, I think he could have been a bit more patient. I had no problem with the 50. Well, I mean, I didn't either. Like, I was fine with it. But... Why didn't you have a problem with the 50? Because if the whistle goes, look at the umpire. Yeah, correct. And, I mean, like, I was watching that game up in the um, AFL members' dining room behind the glass. So you don't see – like, you don't get a lot of the sound from outside. But I could see the umpire pointing, like – that it was a West Coast kick, and I was like, yes, yes. And all these Collingwood fans around me were like, what are you talking about, you idiot? It's our kick, it's our kick. And I was like, oh, God, I've made a mistake. And then I stood up and I saw them running down, and I was like, yes, I told you so. So I do feel like if I could see it and I knew it was a West Coast free kick, then they should have, like, known down on the ground. But also it was very quick and there was a lot of confusion, and I do think the umpire could have been a little bit more flexible there. But I think that's more about the – that's about the players not noticing the umpire more so than the below the knees. You say it's on the players to look at the umpire, but you just said two sentences ago it's on the umpire to use common sense and, and like umpire within the spirit of the game. <laughs> What's the point of 50-metre penalties? It is to like penalise deliberate acts against the spirit of the game. You throwing it back because you think it's your free kick because you think it's your free kick is not trying to hold up play. You're not throwing, you're not throwing it over the person's head. You're not like having a go at the umpire and swearing at him. You've literally just gone, yep. I did it. I did an act, and I think I'm okay with that. Like the way he did it, showed no malice. It showed no like ill sportsmanship. It was literally just like, of course. Mm. You said it happens so many times where a free kick gets given. You go, that's obviously my free kick. Off we go. Like the umpire. Like this is yeah. where this is where AFL umpires are very different to all other sports umpires because all other sport umpires are happy having having a, a dialogue. And there were some great examples in NRL on the weekend where two referees made really complicated decisions. Um, with rules that like only like referees would know, the play comes up and goes, "Oh, ref, why wasn't that offside? Oh, why wasn't that a bound?" And he goes, "Actually, when this happens and this happens, you get to this decision." And then the, the player goes, "Oh, thanks for thanks yeah, for explaining yeah. that to me." You don't have Whereas, the stoppages for di- for that amount of dialogue in AFL, but they did because he paid the fifty. No, but my, so my point here is, yes, I agree that the advantage rule in AFL lends itself to you not checking. So, but I would have thought there's enough ambiguity around the rule book, but in terms of whose free kick that is, mm-hmm. I think you have to, as a player, know that there's a risk of giving away a 50-metre penalty if you assume. That would be my directive. If I was Nathan Buckley, that would how be much I would dis- say. How much disadvantage does West Coast get by not having the ball thrown back to them immediately? Well, it's potentially, like one, it's potentially one, quite a lot. It's one second. It's, yeah, it's but that's the difference between someone dropping into the hole in front of JK. The whistle's gone. Not. They're already moving back anyway. Like there's there's already like no there's already no advantage because the whistle uh, has has been blown. I no, think that time makes they, a huge that difference. was a ridiculous fifty. And if that fifty's not paid, then we're not spending five minutes talking about how the sliding rules an issue. The, the reason they gave the fifty, that's why it's an issue. There are there are worse rules at the moment than that rule. A deliberate out of bounds being one. Uh, I don't know. I like deliberate out of bounds. It's a shank. It's like it, you get you get penalised for a like, no, sorry. No, I like, I no like defender delib- in the goal square is trying to kick it out uh, kick it out. Of bounds deliberately, so they give the uh, give a forward a goal from the thirty-five minutes. I think the problem with any with that rule is as soon as, as soon as you're trying to assume the player's intent in any sport, it becomes very very difficult. Or you're mm. then trying to be a mind reader, mm. and if you haven't noticed, we don't. I don't have those powers because I'm not not living in a fantasy world. But what you what you can do is have, and there's been a couple of people. Shout outs to uh, my other my other podcast brother Brian, who said this a couple of weeks ago about we need full time umpires, but if possible, we need umpires that used to play. Like you can work out intent because if you were a defender or you were a player, 
You know what you would try and do, you know what you wouldn't try and do. And you can tell, like, these are the top 1% of AFL footballers in, in, like, the nation. Like, yeah, there are some what we call poor footballers that play in back pockets, but no one is so poor that they, like, deliberately shank it to no one. They wouldn't make a list if they were that poor. So, like, umpires need to realise that and go, that was, an, uh, was a skill error, not... Or we change the rule and just go, it's last touch of the bound and get, in with, get rid of throw-ins. Because mm. otherwise, that's that's a worse one. And Hamley's taking his second free kick for out on the field. Nice grab by the umpire as well. It was, the boundary umpire showing his versatility. So, moving on, Casey, you watched Brisbane knock off the Eagles in round one. I'm just reminding you of that because <laughs> I want to kill a little bit of happiness because I'm a misery merchant. So... We're going to just talk about whether Brisbane are a contender. And I want to start with your reflections on that round one game where you got thoroughly belted. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for the memories. Yeah, I'm a bit salty you brought this up, JB. Thanks. Um, yeah, I was actually, I was nervous going into that game because um, I think I, we spoke about it before the season about us being a bit optimistic about Brisbane and sort of looking forward to them. But I don't think I expected them to be this good this early. Um, they had us completely covered that game um and it was really frustrating to watch so I don't know what they've done to change their season around I think that their recruiting has been really good um but I'm while I thought they were going to have a bit of an upswing I did not imagine it to be as much as what it has been like they're so impressive and they're really fun to watch too like the really frustrating thing about that west coast game was um it was actually enjoyable football to watch them play which when they're doing that to a team that you love, it's really difficult to, yeah. to see. Um, yeah, they're so exciting. The shoots have been there for a while. I remember Dad and I watched them at Eddie Had against St Kilda. Um, I think it was seventeen. It's about halfway through twenty seventeen, and it was they were six goals down, and then kicked six goals in a row, and just like that was the point in their development where some of their young players had signs, but not um, the metal to compete for huge periods. Um, and you kind of found that they'd really built the offense. They kind of went the reverse. So they built the offensive side of their game, I think, before they built the defensive side to an extent. So Dad and I walked away from that game and very distinctly went, we would rather be Brisbane than St Kilda. And at that point, St Kilda was still well ahead on the ladder and ended up winning the game by 20 or 30 points. But just from what you kind of observed, I went, yeah, there, the, the shoots are coming. And that kind of shows in the numbering for this year, Gord. Yeah, so I, I got a different approach because I don't think that 17 was as impressive. And I, I'm i not a big fan of young teams being attacked first. So Port went down that when they first had a super young team. And other teams have tried that and it hasn't worked. And so what, what Brisbane have done this year is turn around their defence. And I think that's where you build sustainability. So if you look at the real good team. Like West Coast, as much as they have great mids, they have great forwards. They're the best defensive team and have been for a very long time. Geelong's been the best defensive, like one of the best defensive teams for like a decade. That's well, how they've Hawthorne stayed up the ladder. Hawthorne for 15 years. Yeah. And so like, and you would know this as a coach, like defense is system-based and attack is skills-based. So if you don't have the, if you don't have the players, you can still be a good defensive team. Yeah. Circa Fremantle, circa most of Ross Lyon's teams. <laughs> Which is, which is not a dig at Ross Lyon. He's a really good coach that often gets really bad lists and then has to work them around. And what Brisbane's done is gone okay, let's make a system. So we'll bring in Hodge, we'll bring in Fagan, we'll bring in and essentially adopt a Hawthorne defence and credit to them. We'll get everyone to buy in on that. We'll turn around our issue where we used to concede 100 points a game and now we're conceding around about 70, which is in the same year, like same section of the ladder in terms of defence as, as like your Geelongs and your West Coasts. And then we'll go and, we'll go and get some players that can give us some class up front and kick some goals. And now they're doing that. If you solely rely on kicking goals like Essendon, like Melbourne, then you get into 
then you get into situations where it becomes a shootout and it's just who has the best list. And then you can't control that. It's either it's either luck if you have similar lists or you'll get beaten by a better team. So it's a no-coach game. Yeah, it's a no-coach game. You may as well not have coaches. Whereas this shows that there's a system in place in defense and then it's like when you've got the ball, have fun and play your style. So they can still be fun, but they're still quite like they're still quite regimented when they when they have to be as well. Which is how they win games. And which is what they did to West Coast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think they I think from here they have to make the eight. I think they will now. I find it hard. Their drop off would have to be quite significant. It's definitely been number four and it's been done by more mature teams than this. Yeah. So it would be a case it wouldn't be that unusual for a young team to miss from three and zero. One day, Simba, the sun will set on my time here and will rise with you as the new king. And this will all be mine? Everything. Everything the light touches. Now, the other Queensland team, well, we, I want to introduce this by singing a Beatles song because the sun's coming. Da-da-da-da. So is the sun actually coming up or is this a, uh, a false dawn, so to speak? I really don't know. I really don't know. Um, oh, the dog's I, just a bit shit. Uh, no. No. I think um, if if Gold Coast had won that first game over St Kilda, I'd be all on board Gold Coast. So what you're saying is the point made – one point made a difference. But I think it's just like that's kind of the – they're the optics that you have as like a general footy fan when you kind of look over things is you just see those score lines and you just think, oh, yeah, if they just got over them a day, I'd be – my mindset towards the Suns would be completely different, which is so, like, that's unreasonable, right? And I know that. Um, but, like, I haven't really watched any of their games. So my um, so my perception of Gold Coast is that they're good-ish, um, <laughs> just based on what I've seen and read about them in the paper. And then I listened to, like, Stuart Jewell on 360 last night and – he seems to be speaking – he speaks so well about the side and now I'm starting to pay a bit more attention to them because now I'm genuinely interested. Like, I don't think I've ever been interested yeah. in the Gold Coast Suns, maybe in their first year, but then that mm. died off really quickly. So I think, um, yeah, I don't know, but I'm interested now. And I think that's for a Victorian-based football fan, for me to be genuinely interested in the Gold Coast Suns is a big enough win yeah. for them right now. To use a pod motif, they're good, but they fall within a bell curve. <laughs> like, like they're then they're good if you normalize them against the bad teams, but they're not. Yeah. Like you're not gonna a you're not gonna well, you weren't gonna watch them, and that's mm-hmm. that's part of that's how you can tell as a general fan. Would I watch this team? Yeah. If you say yes, chances are they're a good team. Brisbane is now a good team. You you'll look at the TV gun and be like, lunch with my awkward uncle or watch Brisbane. I'll watch Brisbane. <laughs> lunch with my awkward uncle when he's paying for it or watch the Suns. Oh, I have lunch with my awkward uncle. Like, and that's how that's how like it kind of works. I don't know. So, because I didn't go on Sunday and considered it, it was one of the things that was on the potential. Yeah, list. but you're you're a contrarian. You like to go to these games where it's like, yeah, your romantic bulldogs versus the potential up and coming Suns. That's your jam. Yeah, but I didn't go. I know you didn't, didn't go, but you thought but about it. I think the interesting thing from three sixty last night was that Stuart Jew kind of honed in on the fact that Swallow and Wits are two captains who clearly want to be there. And they've now got a playing group of players who clearly want to be there. They did well in the mature age recruiting. So they got a, a guys like Anthony Miles, my boy Snipper, um, who couldn't get a game in Richmond's team. They took Corey Ellis. They took a sort of small conglomerate of those players who clearly want to be there because they want opportunities at AFL level. So I think they went and got that strategy right. Clearly from what he was saying last night, 
the concerns that other clubs have voiced about something like Stephen May's condition and his mm. suitability to another high-performance program, I think from what they're saying, they have addressed the program up at the Suns and they feel like that is a is a now a holistic AFL-level program. And they've got players that have been at clubs like Richmond that can check that off. So I think they're definitely on an upward path. I don't know where it leads. I mean, it would be interesting if they were 3-zip. But I think that uh, unlike the Lions, I'm not completely sold. Well, no, unlike the Lions, they don't kick enough points. So they went last year. They uh, scored fifty nine points on average and conceded hundred. That's putrid. And then now this year they're so far scoring seventy two and conceding seventy a game. So they're a fifty fifty prospect in a seventy seventy game. If you want to be a top eight team, you score hundred points a game. Basically, that's how, that's how it's gone for about the last fifteen years. Mm. So they're five goal underdogs to any decent team. That's that's the hard truth. So they can they can try and they can try and ease the flow now, and they can make those hundred point teams into eighty point teams and give it a bit of a contest. But like they're not gonna like they beat well they're not gonna beat West Coast like at West Coast or really even at home. Yeah, so like they're gonna be they're gonna challenge mid tier teams. They're gonna beat the bad teams at the bottom of the table, and they're still gonna lose pretty convincingly to the top teams. So where do they finish? But, like maybe they might have. have um, as to how they've played so far this season, after three games, escape that bottom four. If they if they if they keep progressing, they're probably better than the worst of the eight. Here comes the sun. Here comes the sun. I say it's alright. So we went to the Anthony McDonald Tip and Woody show on Friday night, and that was probably the only good thing that came out of the Friday night. Um, so your question, and this is particularly relevant and resonant to Melbourne and Carlton, is whether clubs have an obligation to obtain a certain level of performance for their fans. Casey, I'm going to throw this to you <laughs> because you are an absolutist. And so the, the extension of the sub-question to this is, is tanking okay? And, of course, in a week where Melbourne did not need any more bad news, it came out that, <laughs> oh, surprise, <laughs> guess what Melbourne did in 2009? They tanked. What? They what? Hey, what? <laughs> Did anyone have eyeballs and not realise this? Oh, the AFL. Yeah, whoops, okay. <laughs> but so you reverse the roles, it's West Coast. Yeah. And you can get like like somehow in the same draft you got, you know, Gaff, the reincarnation of Cousins and uh, Nick Nat in the same draft if you tanked. But you had to lose every game in two seasons to do it. Would you be okay? Because it's a very American thing, and you're an American sports aficionado, and teams get told to tank, and their fans tell them to tank. And it's so weird to see, like, Knicks fans with season tickets being like, you better tank so we can get Zion. Hmm. Tanking 100% goes against everything I believe in as a football fan. Like, I mean, the scenario you put forward with West Coast having to tank for two seasons to get those players... I mean, you only know that in retrospect. You only know that those players are going to be any good in retrospect. So there's no guarantee. So at the time, like, if you gave me that scenario, like, well, if you had some sort of time machine, you could go back and do that. I don't, like, you can't imagine that situation. Like, that's just not ever going to be real. So, And Melbourne wouldn't have done it. They got (laughs) Trengove and Scully. Correct. And what did they give them? Exactly. Um, So, like... To me, tanking hurts. Tanking hurts me and it hurts my fan sensibilities. Um, I think, I mean, this is probably going to make me sound like an arrogant West Coast fan again, but, I mean, we haven't had that many times in our club's history where we've been down the bottom. It's only been a very short amount of time. Um, and that that hurt me as a fan, but 
also I could see them trying. So I don't think I – I think that would change my whole fan identity if I was a supporter of a team that was constantly down the bottom and I had to really grapple with that because that's something I've not ever really had to experience. But to me, even if my team is losing – I have to cheer for the effort that they put on the park and I have to know that they're trying because that still connects me to the game. Hmm. So taking to me is just the worst thing in professional sport (laughs) to be an absolutist again. Mm. Um, But in saying that, like, yeah, I've never supported a team like Melbourne who has been down the bottom for so long and probably, like, I don't understand that desperation that their fans could have to be so desperate to cling to something that's going to change that narrative for them. But I'd like to think... I mean, touch wood that West Coast never get there, but I'd like to think if they did get to a period like that, that my values wouldn't change because I think there's so much connected to tanking in terms of the integrity of the sport that I just don't think I could be a fan of the sport if tanking was an issue for my team. Um, and it's such a difficult thing to get your head around as a coach, which was brought out in the mm. in the new findings or the old new findings this week, but also as a player. And so people go like, oh, no, players just play for themselves. But I still think as a player you can't be that disconnected from the fact that the fans that pay for the gate keep, like the gate takings and their memberships pay for you to play football. Like mm-hmm. they, if, you, if you have a, a basic understanding of how football economics work, you should know that your fans pay for you to play football. That's kind of how it works. Mm-hmm. And so if you, turn, if you turn up and then don't turn up, to use a really bad football cliche, mm-hmm. then like you're just you're getting paid for nothing, which, which should – like that alone, a the provide your pride in your personal performance, and just the fact that most of these guys are young people that just play footy for fun anyway. Mm. The the vast majority. So surely, just tanking goes against the fun of the game. But also, b the fact that you, there should be some sense of obligation to be like, actually, no, that this is my job as well, and the job is to serve the entertainment purposes of those people in the stands. Yeah. If that can't be a win, then at least a try. Hundred percent. Like that's the whole narrative of sport that I've bought into, like through my upgrade upbringing is just you try your best you try your best and you do whatever you can and if it's not enough then it's still okay because you tried you gave everything like that's what I believe in as a sports fan like I try and take that sensibility with me as a fan and go to every game and I don't leave early and I support my team and I am there because I'm invested because I'm trying my best in my role to support my team so I expect that kind of effort reflected back to me because you know, I bought a membership, so I'm a stakeholder of my club. I'm consider myself part of that journey, even though that's maybe a bit egotistical. <laughs> like I don't ex- say that I'm part of the West Coast Premiership, but then I kind of do. Um, I was there. I was a signed up member. That was my premiership. Um, but like that's me out there on the field. Like they're representing me, and I've chosen to identify with my club. So I just don't know how I would handle like a story coming out about the West Coast Eagles, like what happened with Melbourne. Like that would break my heart. It would actually break my heart. And then to flip the side of that, JB, you're a, you're the coach of the podcast. How much do you think club culture is affected? So the Melbourne tanking thing is one, and that's part of my question: is does does something that happened ten years ago affect the club today? And is that possible in a transient world where I think only three of those players may be still involved with the club at all? And B, somewhere like Carlton, where they've almost PR'd themselves in this position where results don't matter. Mm. So two two part question, but like can do the previous do the previous history and effects and like all the things we say about Melbourne the club, which is a kind of this fake entity, does is that real? And then B, if your club is selling a story to your members like results don't matter, it's all about the journey 
it's a five-year plan, it's a 10-year plan, whatever. Do those two things filter into the players or is that completely separate? The first thing I'd say is the Tankapalooza game where Jordan McMahon kicked that late goal that then resulted in Melbourne getting Scully and Trengrove and Richmond taking Martin with the pick after. Ultimately, that result had very little consequence on who got the best player. So my, my point there in terms of your holistic football department, you're better off investing in having good player development resources and having good recruiters than you are in actually trying to win the highest draft pick. And if you look at Richmond over the last few years, they picked up, what, Jack Higgins at 17 with a low first round, who you would probably say if you were doing that draft again, goes top 10. Um, oh, Gordo's shaking you can his have, head. You can have your opinion, but yeah, sure. But, but what I'm saying is you still have to maximise that element. Um, in terms of how how many players have to change to get a new vibe in your football club, that's the the um, there's a big philosophical question about whether you if you rebuild a ship and change all the panels on the ship one by one, so it doesn't change form but all the panels are new, is it the same ship? And that's kind of like the football code because mm. you have the common denominator of the jumper, you have all your shared history, but if you turn over almost every player in your football department since, say, Tankapalooza, um, is it still the same team? And I, I just don't think that it is. I just don't think when you had Mark Neal as coach and that particularly bad era, and then the tanking stuff that preceded that would have any impact on what's going on in the four worlds of that football club now. It probably affects... Well, it has an impact, but not the impact that people think it does. So you being in the media constantly and saying, and people drawing a conclusion between that team and this team has an effect because Melbourne are losing. But it, w- like it wouldn't have the effect if, if Melbourne were 3-0 and and then Tankapalooza Gate comes out, then that's a very different thing. But because people can draw the connection and, mm. and kind of make that fallacy true to an extent, then then the players have the buy-in because it's just media noise. But it's not like, oh, yeah, when I got to this football club, I got told of all the, the losers that used to play in 2009 and I had to follow in their losery footsteps. That's I don't think that would have happened. No, because I think all of those, th- even like, so the Bulldogs, the preliminary final curse, Richmond's drought, Melbourne's drought, those things are, at some point, you just go out there and win and then it, the whole thing disappears. And it's like a complete, I know that you want to buy, the clubs will buy and make players buy into that to sell memberships. But I don't think that has an impact on football department mindset because like Richmond players weren't playing in the eighties or the nineties when the club was terrible. They're the ones that are now going out. So it comes to a point where you just don't believe your history. I'd be really interested to talk to players at a club who have failed to break a drought so, like, who have actually tried to go to that place and then not been successful and talk to them about whether they actually felt like in the moment or on the day, match day, or the, the curse had any influence. And I just don't think it would because the reality is there's so many different forces that go into deciding that result that I don't think that your history is a decisive factor. I think we draw those sporting stories up because we like sporting stories. Yeah, definitely. I think that's um, I think that's very true from an internal point of view, but I think from an external point of view, it's very different. So I think the perception from a fan story still looks at those histories, and I think your ship analogy is the opposite for fans. That and that's just what sports clubs are, right? Like they're always going to have the ship completely rebuilt, but the ship is still a club, and the club's narrative carries through. So I think for those players playing for clubs like. Melbourne and even like you know Essendon with their narrative like all those players who are involved in those things are going to leave all those coaches are going to leave all those administrators are going to leave and it'll still be that club but that story 
is still connected to that club for the fans. So new players will come in. They won't buy into that stuff. They'll be there to do what they want to do on their terms. And the club culture, like club cultures change all the time. But I think histories like that still stay very relevant for fans. Because footy clubs have the two things. They have the jumper. They have the song. And those two sort of things. And they probably have their spiritual home ground Mm -hmm. for a lot of clubs. Like Richmond are still at Punt Road. Um, Those things pretty much don't alter. Mm. And they're the kind of panels of the ship that you don't change without huge, huge uproar. Like we saw the uproar over the Bulldogs playing in a Marvel-inspired jumper because the jumper's sacrosanct. So there are some things about a football club you can't change. Mm -hmm. How that plays out in terms of club culture is almost impossible to measure. So if club culture doesn't exist to an extent, does team culture? And so when you look at teams like Melbourne, like Carlton, do you say that they have a bad team culture? Or is culture just a word we use to like make it easier to explain what is more like the mechanics of team teamwork, like, you know, work rate and tactics that we use in the media. So instead of Gary Lyon coming out and say Melbourne have, you know, bad work rates and poor conditioning and they need to have a tactical overhaul, he just says they have a bad team culture. I think there's a distinction between club culture and team culture because mm. club culture incorporates the entire football department and the front office and everything that goes in and how you treat your employees who are working in the social media team. Team culture is specific to the 44 players in the high performance section, which I mm-hmm. think is an important distinction. How much does that make as a, as a thing? And th- this is an interesting question with Richmond. So they're lauded for having an amazing culture. The question for them now is how does that stack up if this becomes a losing season? Does your culture stay the same when the mechanics of your actual football output have changed? Or are those two things intrinsically linked? I think that's really interesting because, again, the teams that have good culture are always, we're not always talking about them the teams that, as the teams that are winning, right? We're like, we're talking about Gold Coast as building culture, mm-hmm. not having a good culture. My question, like, I think you can have a good team culture without necessarily having the mechanics that go with it to make you win. Mm. But I, And I think those two things are different. It's hard because they're interrelated. But you look, at, you look at teams that have proper team, good team culture and you look at, like, even West Coast, when we had the gaff incident, there was very little other spot fires or examples of poor team behaviour other than, like, the norm of extracurricular stuff. But, like, on-field behaviour, you had one slip-up for, for, like, the last four years. Yeah, which is interesting because the media did go into meltdown questioning West Coast culture over that. Mm. Like, their whole club culture was called into question because of that one mm. incident. Um, they were called the weak coast eagles because of that, mm. from like one player's mm. action. Say they want the culture, culture. Eat it up, turn them to vultures, to vultures. Me go game pull up like soldiers. Now when we pull up, we got show first. So, Casey, why do we consistently, and I say we, and I really mean kind of Victorians, consistently underestimate the West Coast Eagles? Given heading into this year, they won a flag without Gaff and without Knickknack. Gaff was best on ground on Saturday night with 35 disposals, and it got to a point where you couldn't even boo him because he was getting the footy so often. Dom Sheed has turned into a player that I think is now a force to be reckoned with, given that he wouldn't have been playing in the grand final but for Gaff's suspension. So maybe there's your, well, it's a funny thing, football. 
Um, but he put the game to bed. He kicked three goals and had 24 touches. So there's a lot going right at West Coast. And Mick Malthouse pre-game came out and basically said that he didn't think West Coast was at its best. Collingwood right now are cherry ripe. If they stepped into finals next week, they'd win the premiership. This is before the game on ABC Grandstand. And it hasn't aged well. I'm sorry, Mick. Um, whenever I come on this podcast now, I want to have my own segment that's just called What About West Coast? Um, this is it. About- this is your chance. <laughs> so before before we start What About West Coast, the reason why no one comes out with a hot take that West Coast is going to win the flag this year is because it's not a hot take. It's a boring take. They're a really good team. They've got really good players. They kick a lot of goals and they defend really well. They have a really strong midfield. They have a great coach. They have a great team culture. They have a strong supporter base. They're like one of the most financially solvent teams in the in the AFL. They're just a really, really good club that's going to play really, really good football and probably win like three premierships in the next five or six years. Good. Wow, what a take. How do I delete Casey? <laughs> <laughs> Can't deal with this happiness. But yes, what about West Coast? Tell us all the reasons why you guys are the underdogs. No, I'm not I'm not saying we're the underdogs. I'm just saying we're completely forgotten. Like you say all these things. That's not what I read in the newspaper every day. No one cares about us over here. Um Because last time I checked, it's the West Coast <laughs> Eagles. We're reigning premiers. Reigning yeah. Can you show me where Perth is on a map? I don't actually yeah. know. Maybe if you bought the West Australian, there might be some news well, about the I West do, Coast. I do subscribe to the West Australian for that reason. Because sure. <laughs> <laughs> I need to. But there's just like so many little things that just do my head in with this stuff. And I can understand for most seasons why we are ignored over here. But we are the reigning premiers. We deserve much more attention. Say that again. The reigning premiers. Say that again. <laughs> um, we deserve so much more attention than what we get over here. Like the front cover of the footy record this round going into the grand final rematch. Who's on the cover? Scott Pendlebury, captain of the losing side in the 2018 grand final, quoted saying something like, we gave it a crack. Like, what? (laughs) What? Where is Dom Sheed on the front of my footy record going into this game saying, I gave that drop punt a crack? Like, better cover. Thank you very much. And I know... Pendles is going to sell more records. I know it's commercial. Because the game was in Melbourne. I know, I know. But I do not care because... They deserve that respect as the reigning premiers. Well, this can be a chip on the shoulder, Casey. You just I like, do have you a can, massive No, no, chip but like this can shoulder. be like stuff economics. <laughs> it's it's all the great teams need that motivation. So, look, look look at the NBA last home game. The Warriors bring out their "We Believe" jerseys. Mm. This is the most dominant team in like almost NBA history, and they bring out a "We Believe" jersey because <laughs> they need something else to believe in other than their own excellence at the sport. So this can be your make-believe narrative, like no one respects us. And now West Coast can be like, we need to prove a point and go back to back to earn that respect. Like this is a great fake narrative for West Coast to get on board with, I reckon. Well, I'd say this, and I do, and I'm this is deliberately um, hoping to incite violence. Um, I wonder if this is just fake whinging, to be honest, because the age, every age expert had the Eagles in their top four. So they weren't necessarily tipping them for the flag, but everyone in that paper as a general consensus, had the Eagles very, very close to the mark again, which is not – I mean, yeah, I, I think that's reasonable. And I also think picking the Premier is a stupid exercise, so I think that says more about the esteem that they're held in than your sort of hot, takey Premiership tip. So I wonder whether this is just you trying to get attention from us. Wow. Not just you, like all <laughs> of Western Australia. The royal – you are just the personal pot in bottom. You're, you're, you and Perth are just – Seeking attention from the rest of the country, basically. But you've we never you've had, that attention. You've had one Prime Minister ever. Oh, my God. John Curtin. 
Stop talking to me like I'm a Western Australian. I'm not. Well, this is the other thing, but you now are re- representative of that state. I Yeah, I'll try my best. Um, but I'm not saying that we're held in, like, disregard in the football community over here in Victoria. Like, I think a lot of people do think that we're a good side, but they're not talking about it enough. We're not getting an- the coverage that we deserve as the reigning premier. Like, so it, But, like, in sports, in news, it's so that, like – Deserving or currency or like news any worth only it's like only like one seventh of why you'd publish a news story. Mm. I don't care. It's it's readership. It's yeah. Because yeah. the ages memo is Melbourne, and like like the and the Herald and the Herald something like you live in Melbourne and you subscribe to Melbourne. If you if you subscribe to the Australian, ooh, that's up to you. <laughs> um, you'll get more West Coast news. But also, I think that there's a difference. You'll between... just also get more other stuff yeah. on the on the front pages that you probably don't. Want to like, there's a distinction for me between Fox Footy not giving West Coast adequate airtime, and then the Age not giving West Coast yeah, adequate true. airtime because they're coming at it from Melbourne national... newspapers. Yeah, like, I know, but yeah. they're a national. This is a very generalized comment. I'm just saying, as the reigning premiers, we deserve to have our players front and center a lot more than what I'm seeing, and I get the Melbourne market. I do understand. But it could be a little bit more than what it is. What about me? It isn't fair. I've had enough. Now I want my share. Can't you see? I want to live. But you just take more than you give. On Sunday, I turned an eye to the future by popping down to Olympic Park to watch Tassie play the NT in the under-18s. With... Both states striving for an AFL team. This is the people's question this week. Is it a national competition without every state and territory represented? For the scoreboard lovers out there, the Devils won the game 13-14-92, defeating the Thunder 6-8-44. And for the lovers of background info, Tasmania's team, according to Caroline Wilson, is a goer by 2026 at the latest, and the Devils are an early step. On the NT front, there's been several, they're several yards behind, but the NT government has pledged funding to conduct feasibility work around what a top-end team might, no, might look like. The other little thought bubble, and one of the reasons I turned out, and we were talking about Morris Rioli before, is that Morris Rioli Jr. is playing for the NT um, and was running out for the NT Thunder on the weekend and was named in their best in the paper yesterday. So, Gordo, Tazzy, are we finally, finally going to do this? Why 2026? So that's the latest. Because the current media rights deal runs out in 2022, and so I couldn't see them introducing another team on the same money because I'd want more money from mm. the from the TV people. So surely 2023 would be the target then because then I don't see them signing a, a TV deal for less than three years. The thing I don't have in the show notes is the end dates on the North Melbourne and Hawthorne contracts. I don't know if anyone knows. For Tasmania? Yeah. yeah. But I'm assuming, I think they're up like fairly soon. Hmm. Um, yeah, so that was probably, I think, like, I, I, yeah, I'm not sure why 2026 was the sort of year. I think that was more like that's the final date that we can expect this because Caroline was, yeah, pretty certain that this is a case of when rather than if and it's always been an if and it's always been something that's been neglected and kind of ignored. So as fan, so I think it makes sense for, for the AFL because it, I presume the AFL wants to have a properly national competition. But as fans... Because we live in an, in a profit shared uh, league, are you okay with your club funding another team? Yeah, yeah. If it's Tassie, mm-hmm. probably less happy about Gold Coast or GWS, but that's a different argument. Mm. Yeah. Um, I that's, mean, that's I, the only issue. So really, yeah. like, 
if we could have like an AFL referendum and if they just like send out on the end of the year survey. What, actually ask people what they want? Yeah. <laughs> well, the end of the year survey, it's like, would you, be, would you be happy if 1% of your membership fees went to helping start a new AFL club in, in Tasmania and in, in T and everyone, and the vast majority said yes, and we just do it. I mean, I have no evidence to back this up, but my gut would be that particularly with Tassie, people would be very on board. And I think yeah. you could get people – the NT arguments are a hell of a lot younger, but I think you could sway people. Well, the, the NT, it's both, – both states suffer from just critical mass issues. So, like, will you get enough people at the grounds to pay for the, for the costs of those two teams, especially when those two teams are travelling to state every second? Week? That's the feasibility study reasoning. Mm. Like, is it going to make enough money? Because at the end of the day, like it, it still is a professional league, and whilst I don't think it's not, pro- it's still not for profit. It's not for profit, yeah. so it does not need, need to, to be making money. money. But it does need to be self-sustaining. Correct. Mm. No, I mean, I hundred percent think that, and I know I've kind of left Canberra out of this because it's not footy heartland, and their alignment, like Tassie and the NT, currently have ta- uh, the Giants clearly have an alignment with Canberra. Mm. Um, part of the solution for me, I, I think currently. They play three games in Canberra each year. Mm. I'd probably like to see that bumped up a little bit in the case of the Giants and have them play four or five in Canberra um, in the long term because I think that, again, we should try and include everyone. But I do think that Tassie... But when you say try and include everyone, like why Canberra? Like they can already get to Western Sydney. Canberra's kind of a bit. Like of a we're not, we're not trying to play more games in Maui because it takes four hours to get from Maui to Melbourne. No, and we're not trying to play more games in like regional Western Australia. Well, we're playing two in Ballarat this year with the Dogs. Yeah, which is the opposite direction. Yeah, but like this is a this yeah. is a really big country. So when you start going like we need a, like Canberra needs to have a team. Like, it's not enough people in Canberra to really have an AFL team. Well, it's also not it's not heartland, and Canberra is an invented town. Mm. Like it's not. It doesn't have the same context and history as Darwin and Hobart and Launceston. Mm. My biggest thing with BNT is that it would potentially have an impact on the go-home factor. Because if you, for example, if you had a Darwin team that Cyril Rioli could play for, there's a reasonable chance he would still be playing mm. in the AFL. Mm. And I think that the, you could say the same about a lot of players, Aussie Wanamiri, um, Nathan Jakura, who have gone home young. I think could have been drawn into and kept in the competition because of a Darwin team, yeah. which I think is a significant reason that it could exist. Um, and I also think it's a real shame that when you look at both of those states, and we've mentioned some NT names there, um, and the same goes for Tassie where you've got people like Rice, Royce Hart, the Rewalts, uh, Daryl Baldock, etc. absolute icons of the game who never had the opportunity to represent a team of their state. Yeah, but also there's not... There's no guarantee that you will get to do that, even with those teams existing, unless you start doing things like like if you go back to the catchment system. So if you're from Tasmania, you can automatically get drafted to the Tasmanian team. Well, I think I mean this is a which then which then causes issues when like the number one draft pick is is from Tasmania. But I mean, I think that like the team should be. I think there's teams in each state should have first access to the best draftee from that state. Different. Why? Because I think that without state of origin in an AF, in this era, there should be some aim to protect the state lines of battle. Different topic of conversation really about region. Yeah, which works system. which works totally fine for your for your state powerhouses, but also which state gets it for Victoria. I, I the other thing, and I know that we spoke about this, Casey, a few weeks ago. So Sam Lane kind of cited that one of the easiest ways to expand AFLW would be for the AFLM to shrink. Yeah. And if you expanded the team, 
the competition out to 20 teams, you then have – you do away with these extra rounds where we have like five repeat games or whatever it is now, mm-hmm. and then you just go around and play a 19-round home and away season with a built-in wildcard weekend. So you then have um, 8v9 and 7v10 for spots in the first week of the finals, mm-hmm. which is played during your bye weekend. So you then expand, but the season then gets three weeks shorter, which leaves a bigger window for AFL W as well. So I think there's a that's a byproduct of what a 20-team comp would look like. Yeah. But I think that there is a possibility there to introduce, quite obviously, wild cards, and then it would potentially affect the season length and solve that problem of equalisation with the draw. Solves the problem of equalisation. Do you see AFL ever shrinking its footprint, though? taking three weeks off so that that's like in their mind that's three weeks where nrl is played exclusively and without the competition of afl yeah and they love they love competition they so just, what are you saying that we would then have 19 home and away games plus we play three teams twice i'd say so i don't see us ever going backwards in a, t- in a number of games we play in a season hmm. i just think that creates huge problems in terms of how you create an even draw yeah, Unless you have a floating which, fixture where you decide those three games once the ladder's always set. And then mm-hmm. my question would be, why not just then expand the finals into a different system that goes for three weeks longer? Well, because then you then it's not really a final system. No, then it's just another comp- It's another league-style yeah. competition. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, it's tricky because, I mean, like our fixture just and has not for a long time made sense. Like it's, it is manifestly unfair. Um it doesn't mm. matter how many times they can try and tweak it and what type of software they use and how many scenarios they have. Like, it is unfair. Mm. So, I mean, the situation that you put forth, JB, and same with what Sam Lane said, just makes 100% sense to me, and I'm completely on board with that. But to Gordo's point, I don't really see the AFL doing away with it for no. mostly commercial reasons, no. which is disappointing because we know the players are asking for shorter seasons. Like, we know it's not just, you know, fans. Um like, it has a lot of effects like on a lot of different people involved with the game, but I think, um, yeah, money's going to win out overall, which it seems to always do. Well, the ironic part is, though, they could actually spend a little bit of money on the AFLW, and then you actually your season goes for much longer. Well, that would be nice. So that's real <laughs> out-of-the-box thinking from uh, us three in the podcast. Oh, I know. That just sounds way too hard, like, with four new teams coming in and making a longer season. Oh, I don't know about that, Gordo. We're not waiting for the game to come to us. We're taking the game to them, or we're going to go and meet the game. Beauty about us is our destiny is around the room. Our sense of spirit and mateship and where we're at, we're not going to be defined by today. The the definition of what we are now is written up on that board. Book club, or rather, AFL Short Film Club. So just to set Casey's tear ducts off and maybe mine as well, our book club is the little AFL video released ahead of the Collingwood West Coast game on the weekend. It's the 2018 grand final through the eyes of Bucks and Simo. So Casey, watching this, what emotions did it awaken in in you? I cried a lot. <laughs> it's only 14 minutes. You cried a lot because of what, though? Because <laughs> it just... Because um, we won and I got reminded yes. again. <laughs> Raining premiers. Ding! Because it's just so beautiful. Um, but unpopular opinion, though, 
bit too much bucks in there. <laughs> like, so we are the reigning premiers and the final scene of that film is of Nathan Buckley. No, nah, so I'm completely if you If you write this as a film, though, like, you, you are an avid reader. Yes. You're an avid consumer of narratives of all different forms and mediums. Take out your team, take out Collingwood. You end with that scene, though. Uh, okay, let me put my little director's cap on. I mean, that scene with his son is beautiful and I think it's an amazing message to bring sport back to a matter of how it is placed in everyday life and acknowledging its importance and its significance, but it is not life and death. I think that is a really great message. However, perhaps we could have just snuck in a little scene of celebration. That's too much fairy tale. That's no, too much no, fairy tale. That's too this saccharine. This is why it's a good film. Fairy tales. Sorry to, sorry to gang up on you. Yeah, no, no the, the thing that I loved about this is you build up the narratives the whole way through the doco and they're almost, they're not exactly the same, but the messages from the coaches are very, very, very similar. Mm. They're very, like three-quarter time, keep the faith it'll happen, keep the faith it'll happen. It's, it's very similar the whole way through, right? Yeah. Which is exactly the way that it must be in most sports on grand final day because at the end of the day, you've just got these two forces who are forces of human beings and one of them wins and one of them loses. And then when you ju- – the only bit in the doco where I went, they're so polar opposite now is the ending. It's, it's going and looking at the Collingwood rooms and people have got their face in their hands. Adam Trelaw can't look up. Buckley's son is crying. And then you're in the West Coast rooms and they're going – bloody mental right (laughs) i that juxtaposition is super 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 powerful because Mm. then you look at the game and you go it's decided by five points yeah and that that to me is really really powerful because it kind of completely puts to bed this idea that there's a deserving winner and Mm. it basically puts it out there that at the end of the day it's sport it's a game someone has to win and someone has to lose see someone has to win someone has to lose but also the people involved do decide their own outcome. It wasn't like a random chance-generated outcome. No. West Coast were the better team and West Coast were better coached. And I actually don't think that's shown in the documentary as well. Okay, interesting. I feel like I feel like Buckley did most of his coaching on the day before the game. And I feel like Simpson did a little bit better. And in a game that was adjusting? In a game that was decided by five points, he did a little bit better. And it's shown in the documentary at adjusting on the day. Mm-hmm. Especially because... And if anything, I think almost if, you, if you're a good enough team going down by five goals at quarter time is like a good thing if you're West Coast because then you can alter. Because with Buckley, you're up by five goals. You're not changing anything. You're, just, you're, just, you're holding the faith, as you say. Hold the faith, it yeah. will come. Hold the faith, it will come. And now it's all just about work yeah. and belief. Whereas now you can go, this isn't working. Let's change and make them react and make them change, yeah. which is what they did. And so like you – know, So like, yeah. just to cut you off there, what did Simo change? Because when I was watching, the thing that I thought was interesting about the doco is I felt from about halfway through the second quarter of that game that West Coast would win. So when Simo has that great quote where he says, it might take us until the last five minutes to go over the top of them, Mm. like it did last time, that was exactly what I felt watching. And so my thing was, from a coaching hat perspective, if I was Nathan Buckley, (laughs) that's a big if, um, I'd have bigger biceps. Um, my feeling was that Collingwood had to read and change something to counteract the fact that the momentum was clearly going against them. When she kicked that goal, I know you as an emotionally invested supporter were celebrating. Mm. I felt like if he hadn't kicked that goal, they would have kicked one a minute later for me. Like, I felt like that was that was almost, it felt for the neutral, inevitable. And it felt for the juice in our old Collingwood mate, inevitable. And my kind of feeling about grand finals is that there's, 
not a huge amount you can do on the day. And I know when you watch the other documentary where he Simpson explains that Liam Ryan and Dom Sheed weren't not meant, meant to be, to be on the field. field. Yeah. And I that's exactly how I would feel because there's so little that you can actually do. Mm-hmm. There's a point where you just go, you put up your hands and you go, no matter what I do here, someone has to do something for us to win. And that's completely on the players. And so oh, the thing I thought was interesting for Collingwood is that their messages and Buckley's messages didn't really change. It was try not to kick to our numbers down the line continuously change the angles, which is what they did against Richmond a couple of weeks ago really well. Um, and then there's that moment in the last quarter where he kind of senses that they've gone away from that. And he kind of, the quote is, stop kicking into our numbers down the line and change the angles. And he's just screaming it at the runner. Mm-hmm. And, but that, the, the amount of times he said that in one doco was what amazed me. It was, we have to, at this point, I just have to go with what I've taught them over the course of the year and hope, basically. So, Two, two questions to you and at the end, Coach Bays. One, do you actually believe that you have very little you can influence in the game? Because if the game is close, so if it's a blowout, then no. Like, you, like a coaching decision or a coaching tactic or a, or a personnel change can't influence a game by probably more than three goals. But five points. And you've been involved in games where you made coaching decisions. You're teaming, you're teaming up here, aren't you? Context to this. So we played... When I was coaching you, mm. the grand final in 2017 um, was us against Brunswick against KBH. What were we? Were, we were one all at halftime. Yes. My main decision at halftime was probably Gordo's single greatest sporting achievement. Maybe this should be in your, your show rundown. Elite tagger. Gordo got employed as the Matt DeBoer, the Levi Greenwood of the Brunswick Hockey Club. And essentially, you got, went to Ben White, who's an Australian junior player, who essentially destroyed us um, in the first half and basically tagged him out of the second half. And I think you played 35 minutes hmm. and ran in your one-paced manner completely with him all day. Sorry, that was a little backhander. But it did a particularly good job. So that was really the only... But that was the only thing we changed. Hmm. So you can change one thing, but the rest of that halftime, I remember very vividly, was just... Yeah, you can't change too much. No. But it was also at that point, I had a very clear feeling that we were playing and executing in a manner that we needed to. We actually conceded what I thought were two really, really poor goals. Um, from memory, did we concede in the first minute of the game? Hmm. Yeah. So that had never happened to us. And so for me, it was in a, in a set of circumstances that we hadn't been hit with before, it was making sure that no one panicked was essentially the, the matter. And we, I think we may have used some of our kind of KPI stats to show people that they were all where they needed to be. Um, and in the end, like... It, the funny thing is it took until it was a bit Adam Simpson like because it took until the last set it was about seven minutes to go I think that we scored the equaliser and then once we scored the equaliser I felt like we would score the winner I felt like it was a case of jumping over the top and we had a couple we had a goal disallowed we had numerous chances in the last two minutes and then we we ended up winning on the shootout but yeah that whole half was about not allowing yourself to panic and then not allowing other people to panic and re- reinforcing the same Adam Simpson-style message. I'd love to know what the opposite were doing mm. and whether they actually had a feeling that they were nearly home or whether they, th- they felt the momentum because I felt like we were in, you know, I felt like we should have won in normal time in the end. Yes. And so my second question is more of an emotional one, but you've been a player and a coach, and so this comes back to Bucks. And like Simpson's, but more Bucks because Bucks never won one, which is why I think they ended the documentary or 
I think it's more of a short film. Like, it's not that much documentary element to it. You don't mm. really find out that much. But this is a guy that's lost grand finals. He's been a Norm Smith winner in a losing grand final. And now he's finally got as close as he's ever got, really, to winning one, this time as a coach, and he loses again. <laughs> so how much about being a coach on grand final day is about making sure it's not about you? Like, I mean, and this is what I'm getting. You can use personal experience. Or you can use more like I just think that's, that's coaching, isn't it? But like, for for Bucks, it's him. Who, it's him who fronts up to the media. It's him who does all the interviews. It's him who's been written about in the press. It's him on the front of the footy record. Like, if anything, last year's grand final was about Bucks. It was about Bucks, and then it was about Collingwood versus West Coast. I don't think he sees it that way. He doesn't say that way. But how do you make sure? And like, maybe it is just coaching. That's the modus operandi. Like I know that there's an L. There is always a because when we won, like when we won, you must have still celebrated like you won a premiership, or would you? Were you that separate from the actual result and the actual outcome and the, and the feeling that it was like we uh, were celebrating? I don't know. Were you there in? Um, you were celebrating. Where were we at four a.m.? <laughs> exactly. Um, no, yeah, you definitely celebrate, but your your, I think part of your motivation. Oh, you want success and you want to do a job well. But to do it's kind of a catch twenty two because to do that do that job well, I think it is about other people. So I, I I think that yeah, there is a selfish desire to win, but so much of the job is committed to helping other people that I think that you can't do that gig well without trying to invest in that. I don't think it is about you. Hmm. And I think that's why the ending to this one is so beautiful. When even so, before the game, before the most hyped up game of his coaching career. He goes and consoles the the banner the yeah. banner fans when it falls apart and says, "Don't worry about, it. go to the next thing." Yeah. When really, that. like, if you were mm. if you're a nervous, superstitious football, you're like, "This is bad omen." And then afterwards, he goes straight to his kid and you're like, there's, there's, "He's like, there's more important people in my life than me right now yeah. that need my support." To... Goes to the runner, yeah. goes to his son. So he's he's if if coaching is about being selfless, even just in the public sphere and in a, in like an outwards in outward motion, then he's very very good at doing that. Yeah, and which I, is why I think yeah, it's it's very poignant that yeah. the film ends that way. But I, even then, like, so when he goes back and sits and goes, "Oh, what can Nathan Buckley do better so we win?" That's <laughs> like that's all going to be focused towards other people, I mm. think, and how you can help other people. So I, I just think the job, and you see that, like, even after the whistle, I, and I imagine he probably had those that quiet moment of introspection where he like at some point went, "Fuck, we just can't get over the line here." But that I think is a private moment. And it wasn't about Nathan Buckley sitting there on the floor. Yeah. Well, that's the moment he has where he puts his head in his hands in the box. He has his moment. Yeah. He deals with it. And then he switches back on. And I think you're 100% right. Like, that is that is coaching. That is your job. Um, and I think, like, you're right, Gordo. I think that's why so many people got around him last year because he executed the role of coach perfectly despite losing. Mm. Um, like, I mean, even for me, like, I put a tweet up after the game, like, just to sort of echo what everyone what else was saying about Bucks. And I just said, you know, despite, you know, him being opposition coach, like what Nathan Buckley did today was so classy. Like everything he did that day was just absolute class. And it was like my most liked tweet ever, um, <laughs> which actually kind of kills me. Because it was that, about a Melbourne team? Because it was about In fact, <laughs> Collingwood. <laughs> that a tweet that a West Coast fan put up about Collingwood was my most liked tweet actually kills me. But I think that just goes to show like how many people just did feel that. And I think – Bucks probably is the epitome of what a great coach is, despite having never won a grand final, because he does everything right, I think. Um, and I think that comes through in the documentary. So, 
yes, a bit too much bucks for me in that doco, but also I'll, I'll allow it. So question for you, Kate. Should this type of access to coaches be enforced or attempted more often? No. Because it happens a lot in basketball mm. and in NFL. Yeah, so, so basketball, every timeout essentially is recorded and they'll choose to play it or not. And I think within the last two minutes, they take away the access um, just in case they've got people on the coverage that can relay the information back in time. Mm. Um, and then every NFL game, the coaches are mic'd and then they'll do a post-game edit of one that they find particularly insightful or yeah. just one that hasn't had enough access for the year or whatever. Yeah, no, I'm not for it. Um, I think doing them like they've done for this video is wonderful and special and I think it's good to do it a certain amount of time after the event and I think to do it at a grand final makes it so much more poignant and really, really interesting and just great viewing. I don't want to see it all the time because it takes away the specialness of it. And I think once you start seeing that access all the time, it's the same with um, you know what we've seen over the years as social media has become more prevalent and your access to athletes and professional sporting organisations on social media. Like once you get a taste for it, you start demanding it, you expect it, like it's the benchmark and you want it all the time. And it kind of loses that impact because it becomes like more like your general news media where it's just stock standard answers and people are more guarded and they're trained to deal with it in a certain way and you're not actually getting that authenticity that you would get from something like this so I think I don't want to see it all the time I only want to see it occasionally and be brought into that world sort of at certain times so I can get that little bit of a taste for it so I can experience that specialness of it but I don't want to be in there all the time because then it loses its gloss for me a little bit um because I know like they're starting to do it a bit more in the NBL, like mm. seeing like that sort of access. Like to me, like that's not interesting for me because um, I know that the messages that they're giving in game are kind of what you expect anyway. Um, it doesn't do anything extra for me as a fan. Um, and I don't really like what they do sort of in the footy now where they try and grab players and coaches coming off with the breaks. That adds no value to me. So I don't want to see more of it. I kind of want to see less of it because then I think you're going to get better content from mm. it. So my... My approach is a little bit different, but I would pay for Coach Cam or Coach Mike, but don't don't offer it as a freebie on the Channel 7 broadcast or the Fox Footy broadcast. As a club member, I would love to be able to pay, I don't know, it could be a lot really, and, but essentially as leadership training. So I get an ear or eyes in the coach's box and like, unlike access to the coaches, but I sign up to like a, a coaching leadership academy for Richmond, and then that way. Like, I think there's a lot, there's a lot of trade secrecy in the AFL, and I don't know why. When the things that they do at that level could be used in fields of leadership outside of sport alone, hmm. and the things that you get in the NFL with mic'd up, and all, and now most clubs are doing more and more like one-on-one sit, like sit downs with the coaches that do, yeah. Yeah, Twitch streams and stuff about this is what I did in the game and this is what the tactics are and this is how I talk to my players and all this other kind of thing. So we, because we get the moment in the media, if you're into things like on the couch, you watch that for a couple of years and then you become, you become used to that and your level of knowledge goes up to a point you're like, cool, I don't want to hear cliches from John O'Brien anymore. I want to know what actual like club team culture is. I want to know what this is. I want to know how you affect that and I'm willing to pay for it. But it shouldn't be shouldn't be free, and the coaches then don't have to dump it down. They can just be like, "I'm going to do coaching," and then you can have my information. And like the things that they that obviously get a veto on it because obviously some things are like special to Richmond and that's their game plan and whatever. But the basics of it and how you can become a better leader and become a better 
teacher and a better coach, I think should be available just for the general betterment of sports fans and sports society. And Chris Scott kind of said last night that he felt there were spaces that are private that we shouldn't necessarily invite people here. Yeah, but Chris Scott very much loves privacy. Okay. He wants to have no JLT games so that him and his brother can have practice games behind closed doors and they can go on the rules committee. And Chris Scott's not the person to ask. Go ask Alistair Clarkson what he thinks. I mean, Stuart Jew was saying that his miking up on the weekend for Gold Coast wasn't forced, but the club had final sign-off on what went to yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was a pretty small bit of footage <laughs> in the context of what we're discussing. Yeah. And I do think that even with the grand final doco, there was clearly care taken to not go into too many specifics of game plan. Definitely. Yeah. Like, you didn't have to be a genius to watch, and watch Collingwood to work out that they have a focus on changing angles. Mm. But the, clearly the really intricate stuff. Yeah. And a lot of that stuff's probably not even head coach stuff. It's probably done in quieter oh, meetings with, yeah. with line coaches. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Um, so, again, would be even harder. But I just know, I just know being, in a, being in a box before inside elite programs that there is a lot of stuff that a lot of people, people like – and maybe it's just a selfish point of view, but people like me that aren't ex-AFL players, I think have something to offer if they're given access and the chance to learn these things, whereas now we can never get into those positions because we're not ex-AFL footballers, so you don't get a development role, you don't get a coaching role, you don't get those things. Whereas if we got access to those things and we can learn those things and show that we have a different view on the game, and then you get different voices involved. And that's why I think like, like having that access and having the ability to see coaches coach would allow you to have more minority groups in, more women in, in coaching, and like hopefully one day have a female head coach of an AFL team because those things, coaching is not about being an ex-player. Coaching is about being a good coach, which I think that's the number one thing that was shown on that documentary. Yeah, I think that's interesting for like coaching a coaching pathway point of view. But yeah. I think from like a general fan point of yeah, view. Definitely, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. No, I want that stuff way more contained because mm-hmm. I think our demand from for inner sanctum access should not always be met. Oh, absolutely. And it becomes now. fake sanctum anyway. Oh, absolutely. Right. Yeah. It just becomes That's like, oh, yeah, yeah. how would you feel about that first quarter? Oh, great. I'm knackered. Bloody well, boy, 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 boy. Yeah. Just going to stick to the plan. All right. We're pretty much, I think, run, done, and one. Round four coming up. Thrones coming up. Uh, it's going to be a big weekend. We will be back with you in a week's time with another little hot pod. Enjoy your footy. Enjoy your footy pies. And most of all, enjoy the battle.